Section 5 of The Call of the Canyon by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3, Part 1. Carly was awakened by rattling sounds in her room. The raising of sleepy eyelids disclosed Flo on her knees before the little stove in the act of lighting a fire. Morning, Carly, she drawled. It sure's cold. Reckon it'll snow today. Worse luck just because you're here. Take my hunch and stay in bed till the fire burns up. I shall do no such thing, declared Carly, heroically. We're afraid you'll take cold, said Flo. This is desert country with high altitude. Spring is here when the sun shines, but it's only shining in streaks these days. That means winter. Really, please be good. Well, it doesn't require much self-denial to stay here a while longer, replied Carly, lazily. Flo left with a parting admonition not to let the stove get red-hot, and Carly lay snuggled in the warm blankets, dreading the ordeal of getting out into that cold, bare room. Her nose was cold. When her nose grew cold, it being a faithful barometer as to temperature, Carly knew there was frost in the air. She preferred summer. Steam-heated rooms with hot-house flowers lending their perfume had certainly not trained Carly for primitive conditions. She had a spirit, however, that was waxing a little rebellious to all this intimation as to her susceptibility to colds and her probable weakness under privation. Carly got up. Her bare feet landed upon the board floor instead of the Navajo rug, and she thought she had encountered cold stone. Stove and hot water notwithstanding, by the time she was half-dressed, she was also half-frozen. Some actor-fellow once said, "'When you w went west, you were c camping out,' chattered Carly. "'Believe me, he said something.' The fact was Carly had never camped out. Her set played golf, rode horseback, motored, and houseboated, but they had never gone in for uncomfortable trips. The camps and hotels in the Adirondacks were as warm and luxurious as Carly's own home. Carly now missed many things, and assuredly her flesh was weak. It cost her effort of will and real pain to finish lacing her boots. As she had made an engagement with Glenn to visit his cabin, she had donned an outdoor suit. She wondered if the cold had anything to do with the perceptible diminishing of the sound of the waterfall. Perhaps some water had frozen, like her fingers. Carly went downstairs to the living room, and made no effort to resist a rush to the open fire. Flo and her mother were amused at Carly's impetuosity. "'You'll like that stinging of the air after you get used to it,' said Mrs. Hutter. Carly had her doubts. When she was thoroughly thawed out, she discovered an appetite quite unusual for her, and she enjoyed her breakfast. Then it was time to sally forth to meet Glenn. "'It's pretty sharp this morning,' said Flo. You'll need gloves and sweater. Having fortified herself with these, Carly asked how to find West Fork Canyon. It's down the road a little way, replied Flo, a great narrow canyon opening on the right side. You can't miss it. Flo accompanied her as far as the porch steps. A queer-looking individual was slouching along with axe over his shoulder. There's Charlie, said Flo. He'll show you. Then she whispered, He's sort of doughty sometimes. A horse kicked him once, but mostly he's sensible. At Flo's call, the fellow halted with a grin. 
He was long, lean, loose-jointed, dressed in blue overalls, stuck into the tops of muddy boots, and his face was clear olive, without beard or line. His brow bulged a little, and from under it peered out a pair of wistful brown eyes that reminded Carly of those of a dog she had once owned. "'Well, it ain't going to be a nice day,' remarked Charlie, as he tried to accommodate his strides to Carly's steps. "'How can you tell?' asked Carly. "'It looks clear and bright.' "'Nah, this is a dark morning. That's a cloudy sun. We'll have snow on and off.' "'Do you mind bad weather?' "'Me? All the same to me. Reckon, though, I like it cold so I can loaf around a big fire at night.' I like a big fire, too. Ever camped out, he asked. Not what you'd call the real thing, replied Carly. Well, that's too bad. Reckon it'll be tough for you, he went on, kindly. There was a girl tenderfoot here two years ago, and she had a hell of a time. They all joked her, except me, and played tricks on her. And on her side, she was always putting her foot in it. I was sure sorry for her. You are very kind to be an exception, murmured Carly. You look out for Tom Hutter, and I reckon Flo ain't so darn above laying traps for you, too, especially as she's sweet on your bow. I've seen them together a lot. Yes, interrogated Carly encouragingly. Kilbourne is the best fella that ever happened along Oak Creek. I helped him build his cabin. We've hunted some together. Did you ever hunt? No. Well, you sure missed a lot of fun, he said, turkey hunting. That's what fetches the girls. I reckon because turkeys are so good to eat. Them old gobblers have begun to gobble now. I'll take you gobbler hunting if you'd like to go. I'm sure I would. There's good trout fishing along here a little later, he said, pointing to the stream. Crick's too high now. I like West Fork best. I've catched some lambing big ones up there. Carly was amused and interested. She could not say that Charlie had shown any indication of his mental peculiarity to her. It took considerable restraint not to lead him to talk more about Flo and Glenn. Presently, they reached the turn in the road opposite the cottage Carly had noticed yesterday, and here her loquacious escort halted. You take the trail here, he said, pointing it out, and follow it into West Fork. So long, and don't forget we're going hunting turkeys. Carly smiled her thanks, and taking to the trail, she stepped out briskly, now giving attention to her surroundings. The canyon had widened, and the creek with its deep thicket of green and white had sheared to the left. On her right the canyon wall appeared to be lifting higher and higher. She could not see it well, owing to intervening treetops. The trail led her through a grove of maples and sycamores, out into an open park-like bench that turned to the right toward the cliff. Suddenly Carly saw a break in the red wall. It was the intersecting canyon West Fork. What a narrow, red-walled gateway. Huge pine trees spread wide, gnarled branches over her head. The wind made soft rush in their tops, sending the brown needles lightly on the air. Carly turned the bulging corner to be halted by a magnificent spectacle. It seemed the mountain wall loomed over her. It was the western side of this canyon, so lofty, that Carly had to tip back her head to see the top. She swept her astonished gaze down the face of this tremendous red mountain wall, and then slowly swept it upward again. This phenomenon of a cliff seemed beyond the comprehension of her sight. It looked a mile high. 
The few trees along its bold rampart resembled short spear-pointed bushes, outlined against the steel gray of sky. Ledges, caves, seams, cracks, fissures, beetling red brows, yellow crumbling crags. Benches of green growths and niches choked with brush, and bold points where single lonely pine trees grew perilously, and blank walls a thousand feet across their shadowed faces. These features gradually took shape in Carly's confused sight, until the colossal mountain front stood up before her in all its strange, wild, magnificent ruggedness and beauty. Arizona, perhaps this is what he meant, murmured Carly. I never dreamed anything like this. But, oh, it overshadows me, bears me down. I could never have a moment's peace under it. It fascinated her. There were inaccessible ledges that haunted her with their remote fastness. How wonderful it would be to get there, rest there, if that were possible. But only eagles could reach them. There were places, then, that the desecrating hands of man could not touch. The dark caves were mystically potent in their vacant staring out at the world beneath them. The crumbling crags, the toppling ledges, the leaning rocks all threatened to come thundering down at the breath of a wind. How deep and soft the red color in contrast with the green. How splendid the sheer bold uplift of gigantic steps. Carly found herself marveling at the forces that had so rudely, violently, and grandly left this mountain to nature. "'Well, old Fifth Avenue Gadder,' called a gay voice. "'If the back wall of my yard so halts you, what will you ever do when you see the painted desert, or climb Sunset Peak, or look down into the Grand Canyon?' "'Oh, Glenn, where are you?' cried Carly, gazing everywhere near at hand. But he was farther away. The clearness of his voice had deceived her. Presently she espied him, a little distance away, across a creek she had not before noticed. Come on, he called. I want to see you cross the stepping stones. Carly ran ahead, down a little slope of clean red rock, to the shore of the green water. It was clear, swift, deep in some places and shallow in others, with white wreaths or ripples around the rocks evidently placed there as a means to cross. Carly drew back aghast. Glenn, I could never make it, she called. Come on, my alpine climber, he taunted. Will you let Arizona, don't you? Do you want me to fall in and catch cold, she cried desperately. Carly, big women might even cross the bad places of modern life on stepping stones of their dead selves, he went on, with something of mockery. Surely a few physical steps are not beyond you. "'Say, are you mangling Tennyson, or just kidding me?' she demanded slangily. "'My love, Flo could cross here with her eyes shut.' That thrust spurred Carly to action. His words were jest, yet they held a hint of earnest. With her heart at her throat, Carly stepped on the first rock, and poising, she calculated on a running leap from stone to stone. Once launched, she felt she was falling down. She swayed, she splashed, she slipped, and clearing the longest leap from the last stone to the shore, she lost her balance and fell into Glenn's arms. His kisses drove away both her panic and her resentment. By Jove, I didn't think you'd even attempt it, he declared, manifestly pleased. I made sure I'd have to pack you over, in fact, rather liked the idea. I wouldn't advise you 
to employ any such means again to dare me she retorted that's a nifty outdoor suit you've on he said admiringly i was wondering what you'd wear i like short outing skirts for women rather than trousers the service sort of made the fair sex dippy about pants it made them dippy about more than that she replied you and i will never leave to see the day that women recover their balance i agree with you replied glenn carley locked her arm in his honey i want to have a good time today cut out all the other woman's stuff take me to see your little gray home in the west or is it gray he laughed why yes it's gray just about the logs have bleached some Glenn led her away up a trail that climbed between boulders and meandered on over piney mats of needles under great, silent, spreading pines, and closer to the impondering mountain wall. Where at the base of the red rock the creek murmured strangely with hollow gurgle, where the sun had no chance to affect the cold, damp gloom, and on through sweet-smelling woods, out into the sunlight again, and across a wider breadth of stream and up a slow slope, covered with stately pines, to a little cabin that faced the west. "'Here we are, sweetheart,' said Glenn. "'Now we shall see what you are made of.' Carly was noncommittal as to that. Her intense interest precluded any humor at this moment. Not until she actually saw the log cabin Glenn had erected with his own hands had she been conscious of any great interest. But sight of it awoke something unaccustomed in Carly. As she stepped into the cabin, her heart was not acting normally for a young woman who had no illusion about love in a cottage. Glenn's cabin contained one room about fifteen feet wide by twenty long. Between the peeled logs were lines of red mud, hard, dried. There was a small window opposite the door. In one corner was a couch of poles with green tips of pine boughs peeping from under the blankets. The floor consisted of flat rocks laid irregularly, with many spaces of earth showing between. The open fireplace appeared too large for the room, but the very bigness of it, as well as the blazing sticks and glowing embers, appealed strongly to Carly. A rough-hewn log formed the mantel, and on it Carly's picture held the place of honor. Above this a rifle lay across deer antlers. Carly paused here in her survey long enough to kiss Glenn and point to her photograph. You couldn't have pleased me more. To the left of the fireplace was a rude cupboard of shelves, packed with boxes, cans, bags, and utensils. Below the cupboard, hung upon pegs, were blackened pots and pans, a long-handled skillet, and a bucket. Glenn's table was a masterpiece. There was no danger of knocking it over. It consisted of four poles driven into the ground, upon which had been nailed two wide slabs. This table showed considerable evidence of having been scrubbed scrupulously clean. There were two low stools made out of boughs, and the seats had been covered with woolly sheep hide. In the right-hand corner stood a neat pile of firewood cut with an axe, and beyond this hung saddle and saddle blanket, bridle and spurs. An old sombrero was hooked upon the pommel of the saddle. Upon the wall, higher up, hung a lantern, resting in a coil of rope that Carly took to be a lasso. Under a shelf upon which lay a suitcase hung some rough wearing apparel. 
Carly noted that her picture and the suitcase were absolutely the only physical evidences of Glenn's connection with his Eastern life. That had an unaccountable effect on Carly. What had she expected? Then, after another survey of the room, she began to pester Glenn with questions. He had to show her the spring outside and the little bench with basin and soap. Sight of a soiled towel made her throw up her hands. She sat on the stools. She lay on the couch. She rummaged into the contents of the cupboard. She threw wood on the fire. Then finally, having exhausted her search and inquiry, she flopped down on one of the stools to gaze at Glenn in awe and admiration and incredulity. Glenn, you've actually lived here, she ejaculated. Since last fall before the snow came, he said, smiling. Snow? Did it snow? she inquired. Well, I guess. I was snowed in for a week. Why did you choose this lonely place way off from the lodge? she asked slowly. I wanted to be by myself, he replied briefly. You mean this is a sort of camp-out place? Carly, I call it my home, he replied, and there was a low, strong sweetness in his voice she had never heard before. End of chapter 3, part 1